Business Women Rock, episode 23. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible business women. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. What's up, ladies? Welcome to the Business Women Rock podcast. I am so happy that you're here with me today. I really just want to take a second to thank you so much for supporting this show and for listening and for sharing these stories from women in your life who could really benefit from them. I truly am so appreciative of that. This community just continues to grow. I know it's because that you are just like me, that you truly believe in shedding light on other great business women who are doing some awesome stuff and just allowing us all the opportunity to really support one another and bring each other up. And that has been the philosophy of every single one of my guests. And it's just been so much fun. And I know that's why this Business Women Rock community has really been thriving. So thank you. It means the world to me that you're here. It means the world to me that you're a part of this community, that you're a part of this entire movement of really bringing each other up. I absolutely love it. And speaking of the great women of this community, today is Business Women Wednesday, where we highlight one great, incredible businesswoman who's a part of the Business Women Rock community. Today, we're highlighting Cassandra Gaines. Cassandra is a recognized tourism executive for the state of Oklahoma. She's very well known for the Oklahoma Historical Black Town Tour, and she's been named one of the top 50 women of the year in the state of Oklahoma. She's a breast cancer survivor, and she has started her own organization called Women Who Care. She's a mom, she's a grandma, she's an innovator. She's doing tons of stuff to support the heritage of Oklahoma. And Cassandra, I just want to salute you. You're incredible. And I got to tell you that you have a huge list of accolades. Ladies, if you want to read more about Cassandra, please go to bizwomenrock.com where you will see her highlighted under the Business Women Wednesday section. And now on with the show. My guest today is Rhonda Shear, who is the founder of Shear Enterprises. Shear Enterprises really focuses on all things undergarment. So the ladies, lingerie, the bras, the panties, all the cute stuff in between. You probably know her name from her Hollywood career, uh, most notably for her series Up All Night. And she's been a stand-up comedian. She's been in Playboy. She just has a huge Hollywood history at this point in her life. Sheer Enterprises has been a huge business endeavor for her that has been massively successful. The year of one of her products launches, the Abra, the company brought in $72 million in revenue. The product sold 30 million units around the world in 34 different countries. She has an incredible story. So the first half of this interview really is going to delve into how she even got to Hollywood, the experience she had in Hollywood, because it really lays the groundwork for her work ethic, for how she's built this company and what she's done. And then the latter part of the interview really focuses on sheer enterprises and the business model and what's going on there. She is incredibly energetic, very creative, and such an incredible storyteller. So I know you're going to have a great time. So turn up that volume. Let's roll. Rhonda, I really am 
so excited to be here with you today. Thank you so much for sitting down with I'm me. I'm excited to be here with you. Oh, I am sitting here live in your office in St. Petersburg, Florida, and um, and it's just such a joy. Uh, very visually stunning place, by the way. <laughs> Sheer Enterprises is all about the undergarments and the lace and the beauty and the the bras. So uh, it's a we very wanted it to be romantic, and and my office is the most girly of all. So it's it's definitely a combination of my past Hollywood with some. Uh, memorabilia on the walls along with um, an interest that I used to have not quite as much today is doll collecting. Yeah. I had my own line of dolls for a moment there. Some old trophies from when I uh, was a pageant girl. So all of these things are memories to me, but they're also part of what I do today. So it all comes full circle. You are so diverse in not only your business background, but just your experience that you've had. So I, I want to get a li- like lay a little foundation for that first. So I want to okay. tell us a little bit about how you grew up, so we can really understand why you have the fire that you have. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I always kid because I'm from New Orleans, so I say it was something in my mother's gumbo. Um, <laughs> I was the fourth of four children and the baby, and definitely I don't think I was a planned uh, baby, but anyway, that's fine. And um, Kind of cool. My parent, my father, very humble beginnings. He actually worked for his brother-in-laws in the automotive parts business. The cool thing about that was my mother's side, who started this, my grandmother on my mother's side, was a single businesswoman at a time in automobile parts in New Orleans, migrated from Russia. Her husband passed. And she, he moved from Russia with her, passed very early, like the age of 30. So she was running a business of automotive parts with five children, my mother being the baby of that family. So I think that a lot of strength comes from my family background, tenacity, and competitiveness. So I definitely got that. So long story short, my father um, ended up starting his own sort of the same business except more truck parts for for big truck fleets and rebuilding of engines and not a very glamorous business. So I didn't have a lot to do with it other than I knew that it was allowing me to enter pageants because <laughs> uh, I was really at the tail end. I have a sister that's 16 years older than me, a brother 10 years older and one nine years older. So um, You were the oops baby. I was, I was the oops. <laughs> so, um, but I was very proud and saw what my father went through because he actually started his business, his own. He worked for his family until he was 50 and through a series of things he started you know, at 50 years old. So that was kind of rough back then to start, still had, I think, three of us home, and uh, to start all brand new, your own business. So I actually sat in on meetings. I was a child, but listening to my father just even financing a business from ground zero. So, and I guess it all sticks with you. So great beginnings. I had a very supportive family in my showbiz endeavors. And how that came out is I was the kid in grammar school who, they kind of made fun of because I had curly hair and I was very uh, shy, believe it or not. So then, but then over over the period from grammar school, into, we had junior high. I developed, so I sprouted things. <laughs> and with the sprouting, which all comes back to what I do today, I I got a little confidence because when I got to this new school, boys were noticing me and they were being sweet. And so I'm like, what is this? I didn't really understand, but I kind of understood. You know, I got very competitive, and I ran for student council, and I was a cheerleader, and. I went from being totally unpopular to popular, all because that I had some curves. Curves. <laughs> wow. There you go. So, but lo and behold, I actually in junior high met my first sweetheart, Van Fagan, who is now my husband, 
So he was my very first sweetheart, first love, first kiss, first everything. We reunited after 25 years and got together and started this company. That's so serendipity, though. Um, things are meant to be. Yeah. He was not meant to be in the first part of my showbiz life. It just wouldn't have worked. He was yeah. very jealous. And I just don't think I would have ever taken the Hollywood. Maybe it would, I would have been a different course, but I wouldn't have gone and followed my Hollywood dreams. Mm. So I'm really glad that I did, even though I got married for the first time in my mid-40s, to Van, my very first sweetheart. So, But I use all of those things, all of those very beginning things I did, the competitions from the beauty pageants, being Miss Louisiana, dancing on a local dance show, um, all the things that I did, I use now in my business. And it's still, it, it definitely there was a fire in me for competitiveness. Now, it wasn't competitive uh, so much against the other girl or the other thing. It was about being the best that I could be. Because I, if you look around, there's far more beautiful, far more intelligent people, but I, I just wanted to make my own little niche. So I always had this saying, you have to catch their attention. Once you have your attention, then you show them what you got. I'm going to come and circle back around to your love story with mm -hmm. Van because that's so integral to what you're doing right, right now. But before that, I really want to delve into kind of what happened in Hollywood. First and foremost, tell us really how you got there. Like, you know, you were doing these pageants. You were getting used to this right. sort of competitive attention, let's say. Right. In New Orleans, I was a very big fish. Um, well, that, my Hollywood story is really kind of cool, too, because uh, I graduated from Loyola. My parents just wanted, as they said back in the day, four sheepskins, which meant four diplomas on the wall. All four kids graduated from college which my father, I was, he was very proud since neither one of them did that. So that was an accomplishment for him for all four children to do that. So I had to finish school, which I did, and I stayed in town for that. But I was also modeling and these pageants, and Playboy came through town. And that's also so integral in my life today. But Playboy magazine was looking to do an issue called Girls of the New South. And my modeling agency said, do you want to meet with them? I said, sure. Well, I knew I wasn't going to take my clothes off. My parents were very conservative, and I was conservative, and I was really young. But I was still curious. I wanted to meet the photographer and the people from Playboy. So I said, it can't hurt. So I go out and I meet the photographer and whoever was representing Playboy at the time. And I said, well, I guess I'm wasting your time. Because they were interested, I could tell. Because I, I don't want to disrobe. Um, and, and they told me, they said, you don't have to. Because when we do these big articles like this, we shoot some girls you know, in different states of undress and, <laughs> and dress. And back then, they, they would put a few pictures in totally dressed. They said, but let's do something themed around who you are and, and your pageants or whatever. Well, I had been, you know, queen of Floral Trail Society and where you wore like this big antebellum Scarlet O'Hara gown. So they photographed me in the Scarlet O'Hara gown at a plantation and the picture showed up where I received $200 for that picture showing up in Playboy. That was my big payoff. <laughs> it was the little snapshot, snapshot size and the weird thing that came out of that was back then Playboy had a different connotation down south. Even though I was clothed, I was slap dab in the middle of a page with women that weren't clothed around me. And I was reigning as the Floral Trail Society Queen, which was not a pageant that you that you won. It was like a social honor. Your parents donated so much money and then you're selected from a group of women to represent the Floral Trail, which was basically beautifying parks and and um, roadways back then, but it was a big deal in New Orleans. That social Mardi Gras thing all ties in. Anyway, because it wasn't a pageant like Miss Louisiana, the Floral Trail Society got really upset over the connotation of Playboy and dethroned me. Right away. Huh? Right away. So um, I filed a lawsuit against the Floral Trail because I did nothing wrong. I was totally clothed to be reinstated as their queen because my parents had put up money and the floral that event was happening like a month later. And so it went to court. And I had like Jimmy Fitzmaurice and 
who was the lieutenant governor of the state, and all the Blaine Kern, who's virtually owns Mardi Gras, all these big people in New Orleans testified on my behalf that this young lady is a fine young lady. Her parents are upstanding in the community. She should not be dethroned. She should reign as queen. And um, at the end of, the, of about a seven-hour court <laughs> hearing, it ended up that the, the judge said, that he felt that he could not reinstate me as queen, but that I could file for monetary damages, which would have been my modeling career and all that. But at that time, there wasn't that much monetary damages to file for. But what it did do is that hell hath no fury is a woman scorned. <laughs> the president of the Floral Trail Society, I'm sure it was his wife, not him, but that gentleman was running for public office in New Orleans. My sister, who's a little mischievous, who's 16 years older than me, said, you need to run against him. Just throw your name in the hat just to mess with him because he, you know, he's the reason that you're off the floral trail society. You didn't rain. And I just finished college and I was ready to get going with whatever I was ready to get going with. And so I signed up. I signed up. I, I, next thing you know, I'm running against an 82-year-old incumbent, this gentleman who was an attorney, Another guy who just threw his name in the ring probably just so we would buy him out because people do that. They, they want to be paid off if you get them out because really? it's that fourth party or fourth that sometimes will take votes, will split votes. So, so it was this four-ring four circus, and I ran for office. In the beginning, it was, it was a joke, but all of a sudden, my speaking ability and all my pageant ability and all the things I did, I'm speaking in front of hundreds of people, and I'm making sense because I did my homework. I went and researched this office. And actually found a platform that everything was below sea level. And we know what happened to Katrina in New Orleans, where these deeds were kept. And then I wanted to bring it above sea level. And back then there wasn't a computer, but, you know, to, to move them to microfilm before you were born. <laughs> but um, I ended up losing by 35 votes and, and, and received like 35,000 votes, in a, which was huge back wow. then. I mean... So people were taking notice. People were taking notice. So I'm like, wow, this is blowing my mind. I wanted to... Part of me wanted to stay in New Orleans to be a, new, a news anchor. Part of me wanted to go to Hollywood and try acting. Another part wanted to run for public office again. I was the first woman to ever run for office in New Orleans or in Louisiana, and I was the youngest woman to ever run. Then I thought you had to be a lawyer to be a politician back then, so I applied to law school and was accepted. And But I was like, okay, I was just out of school. I asked my parents, can I please go to Hollywood for the summer? I need a break. And they said, okay, but you need to be in school. I don't know, I just finished school. I enrolled in the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and it was a school, but it was for drama, and some of the best actors in Hollywood go there. It's incredible training, and um, pretty much that was it. I never went home for 26 years. I mean, went home, but I mean, I didn't move out of Los Angeles for 26 years. Uh, I had beginner's luck, auditioned for a Bob Hope special. My agent sent me on that. I thought it was just going to be me and a few girls. There was a thousand girls waiting in line. It was an open call, but then that old competitive... Beauty Queen Spirit came back in like, I, 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 I got to get this. They were picking six girls out of a thousand. And I said, I, I've got to get this. So I stood in line all day long. They narrowed the, fifth, the thousand down to a hundred, the hundred down to 50, the 50 down to whatever. Um, I think, yeah, I think it was 50 or 25 that ended up going in front of Bob Hope himself the next day. When I finally got in front of him and he was interviewing me, he and his daughter for a Bob Hope special. I just remember I'm a dancer. I'm from New Orleans. And when I said I'm a dancer, I, I, he, you're a dancer, I kicked my shoe up and it landed almost on his head. <laughs> like, it flipped up into the air and landed on the desk where he was interviewing me from. And I went, well, I got noticed and I got it. I got wow. it. So that just, it was this beginner's luck. That was my very first thing I did. 
And that led to my being on the Happy Days, which was like awesome to work with. You know, people I grew up idolizing the Fonz and all these people. And that just one thing led to another and just really had like a very, I, I never stopped working, although I'm probably best known for things I did later in Hollywood. But when I went and was doing research on sort of all the accolades that you had in Hollywood, all the movies that you've been a part of, all the TV shows that you've been a part of, I mean, I kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I mean, you have a ton ton. of experience under your belt. I worked really hard at working. Back then, you had to knock on doors. I mean, I moved out there in in late 1978. And I still saw a little bit of old Hollywood, which was kind of cool. But you had to knock on doors to get to agents. You had to knock on doors to get to be seen. There was no... You had to pick up the telephone. And, and you're some young something from somewhere, some you know, with other million young somethings from somewhere that just came in. And um, again, my theory was that competitive spirit, though, to, uh, just to keep doing it. And I enrolled in a comedy class, and that came back from my insecurity, going all the way back to grammar school about feeling insecure about my nose. I have a little bit of a different nose now, and my hair. And so I always thought if I made people laugh, then in my mind, they didn't notice things. Or even though I was a beauty queen, I didn't like my butt so much or the size of it. So I, I knew how to like turn a certain way, angles, so that the judges would look at my face and not the backside. So I had these little tricks that I taught myself, you know. So I enrolled in a comedy improv class, Harvey Lembeck, who was a very famous improvisational teacher. His, his, his kids still teach the class. It's still the most famous improv class. Robin Williams came out of that class. Wow. A lot of comedians, a lot of Saturday Night Live stars. And he was a tough old bird. His name was Harvey Lembeck. And Harvey, he never called me by my name. It was like honey or kid or whatever. <laughs> but I learned a lot. And I learned, you know, I got over that fear of just improv, comedy improv is a whole other thing. And I, I teamed up with a, a young fellow in class who was new in LA too, named Kenny Ellis. And he was uh, a really funny singer, comedian type. We became fast friends. And we started putting together our own little comedy show. I grew up doing Mechanical Mind, which is like, kind of like Shields New now, like that doll stuff. And I used it, like, a lot to make money. Like, at conventions, I would stand there to attract attention to Boost doing this doll, like, mannequin modeling. So he would, Kenny, Ellis, we started coming up with a plan that he should deliver me to people's office as a doll. And then they couldn't say no to this life-size mannequin dressed in a nude body stocking. And then he would start to sing. He had to, like, in this opera voice and dress me. And, you know, I mean, comedically. So we, we, he delivered me to the Johnny Carson's office. He delivered me to Mark Griffin's stage. He delivered me to uh, the Smothers Brothers uh, rehearsal. We would just crash. You could never do that now. But he would carry me over his shoulder, and I would go into this routine, and eventually we would do this little bit together. And what was the reaction like? The reaction was really great. Like, we ended up getting booked on uh, several shows only got thrown out of one place, which was the Smothers Brothers, which later, much later in life, when I was headlining in Las Vegas, I got to meet Tommy Smothers, re-meet Tommy Smothers, and I reminded him of that. He did not remember <laughs> But I'm like, I said, you broke my heart. Not only did you break my heart, but it was this up-and-coming comic, and you, you shut us down. You was the, the, the only people, I mean, ever, Freddie DeCordova, who was the, the producer of The Tonight Show, he loved it. I mean, we didn't get booked on there, but he, we became friendly with him and would stay in touch with him through the years. So it's really interesting that we just, just took this gutsy, gutsy route and just did it and went for it. But through that, I got my first agent and, um, I went back and then I started doing pageants. So here I'd run for office, had finished and completed my whole pageant career of being Miss Louisiana. It was three different Miss Louisianas and three different national pageants. Didn't win any of the nationals, but I didn't know how else to be discovered in Hollywood. So I went back and I went, well, maybe if I enter pageants, 
it's a way to meet agents. So I entered Miss Hollywood and I won that. And then I won Miss Los Angeles Press Club. Now that was a big deal because Marilyn Monroe was the first and I was the last. Because pageants back then, now they're cool again, but back then they were starting to take this women were like, you know, becoming empowered and, you know, you shouldn't be a pageant girl. It's like not cool. It's, it's bad. Got it, got so, it. but that was like in the, in the very early eighties. So, but I was the last Miss Press Club at the Press Club because my background was journalism and communications. They really took me under their wing and started bringing me to events and representing them at events. And you'll also see in my wall, there's a picture of Muhammad Ali and George Burns. And I met a lot of these people through the Los Angeles Press Club, which led to jobs, which led to agents, which led to getting on the phone and making phone calls, no emails, no texting, dropping off packages, dropping off videotapes, just daily. So I never stopped. And I, you were I just pounding like the pavement. I, I pounded the pavement. Wow. I virtually pounded the pavement and you know, you don't, didn't get in everywhere, but slowly but surely you start to make these. I didn't know anyone. I wasn't a kid from a family from Hollywood. I knew no one out there. So I, I really, you know, I didn't become like this mega Angelina Jolie, but I certainly made enough noise and made a living at it and then certainly did a show that people still know. So I'm very proud of it considering that, and I also didn't sleep around, although I was asked to. <laughs> and and, Chase, sure. and had some, not only just asked to sleep around, that's of course goes with any territory, but, but by some really big moguls, some really scary things, like promising stuff and people that you wouldn't expect. This one, um, well, I'll mention his name. He's long gone now. Ray Stark. He produced all the funny girls, all the all the Barbara Streisand films. Mm -hmm. Really famous. And an agent sent me to his office. Well, I imagine she was in on this. Who knows? She might have been getting a piece of the action monetarily, but sent me to his office. So here I am, this 23-year-old girl, and I come going with my portfolio, and I'm sitting there with Ray Stark. Like, he's going to hire me for something just because it's a, a general meeting, you know, like... And he's looking through my portfolios. He's like, oh, you're a lovely young lady. And so I'm like, oh, and I mean, I'm so naive, you know, even though I think I'm all grown up. We're, we're having this nice conversation. He goes, you know, you're, you're a beautiful young lady. You really need to learn one thing in Hollywood. And I will never forget this long as he goes, you need to learn to wallow in the dirt of Hollywood to get ahead, which I guess, you know, he really meant it. And then he asked me to go to his weekend house in Palm Springs, so I I guess wallow with him. And of course, I didn't know what to say. I'm like, okay, well, I'll let you know. I'll let my agent get back to you. <laughs> and I get out of there and I get onto a payphone. There was no cell phones. And I said, did you know he was going to do this? Well, apparently she did. She wasn't going to admit that. I was mortified, you know. I mean, I was mortified because that was my first true taste of someone this big on his, in his own bungalow on the lot at Universal Studios. Did you have anyone in Hollywood kind of take you under their wing or be a mentor to you that was able to either introduce you around to the right people or really give you kind of advice along the way of, of how you should be doing things and what you should do? No one really mentored me, but, but I did get some, some interesting advice like from a woman named Joyce Selznick. If you look her up, she was like the casting director of all casting directors. And she was old school, old Hollywood and discovered some really big ones. And she said, I'm telling you right now something that no one else is going to tell you. Your mouth moves too sexy. <laughs> Your mouth moves too sexy. So it's going to be very hard for you to get cast in like that general girl next door role. And the other thing is your nose. It looks good from the front, but from the side, it doesn't look, it's going to, you're, it's not going to show right. You're going to come off too ethnic and they're not going to light you correctly because you're not going to be the star. You're going to get lesser roles in the beginning. And it's not going to do well. So I suggest you do something about that. <laughs> that was Wow. Straight okay. up, huh? <laughs> straight up. 
my mouth moved to sexy and well, I, I did, you know, slightly alter my nose, but not, not a big deal. Just enough so that in profile, I wouldn't have this nose that she, which by the way, I ended up doing a Mighty Carson art players with Johnny Carson. It was all in profile with that other nose. And I was mortified or at least <laughs> I thought because she was right. They didn't like me because they were lighting him. But other than that, yeah, tidbits along the way, but I never had anyone literally take me under their wing and, um, uh, nurture me along. Now, all of this hustle, all of this really, you know, getting out there, doing networking, meeting people, actively asking and trying for roles and doing cool little strategies to kind of get you in right. doors that wouldn't normally be open really led up to probably one of your biggest and most well-known roles, which is up all night. Absolutely. So talk a little bit about that experience, how you got that role, what it was and what you love most about yeah, it. These are all great questions. You're so good, Katie. <laughs> I really love this interview. I really do. So because I did that stand up comedy, that comedy and I felt like my mouth moved too sexy apparently. And I wasn't going to get these, these roles that you see, you, you, you see these girls all the time or these women, but you don't know their name, but they're on every TV show. I was never going to be one of them. I was going to be a standout performer. And it's really hard to get the standout performer roles. And it was true. I, I didn't get any of those roles that Joyce Selznick told me about it, that I auditioned for. So I really went slapdab back to comedy. I started saying, I got to do stand-up because there's no pretty attractive women doing There was no one. There was Elaine Boozler, who was cute, and Joan Rivers, and a few other, Jan Karen. But there wasn't really any in that era of the, of the mid-'80s women that were coming from a beauty queen background. This is long before Jenny McCarthy and uh, Chelsea Lately. Anyway, I started doing stand-up comedy, little clubs, standing out in front of a club all night long, ready to go on stage. I got up, the first time I got up, I, it was at a talent contest. It was five kids doing their impression of Michael Jackson. And I got nauseous, but I still went on. Someone sneezed and I thought it was a laugh. So I went back there the next week and I kept doing that. And so comedy was my way in to be noticed. So um, I, once again, it was, a, uncharted territory I kept going you know calling club owners getting on at clubs five minutes ten minutes until I finally started opening as an opening act traveling on my own dime to go to these divey clubs all over the country because I wouldn't stay where they put me up but anyway so up all night comes along and up all night I have I was with Dick Clark management right at that point which was a really good management firm and my manager had a tip that they that USA Network was looking for a host, that they already had another host named Caroline Schlitt. They were looking to change her image. Her image would have been perfect today. She was more like the Chelsea lately. She was sarcastic. She was cute. But for some reason, they wanted this total sex appeal thing. But anyway, doesn't matter. They were getting rid of her. So they said they were looking for a host. They wanted sex appeal. So I'm like, I am so tired of fighting this sexy image that Apparently, my mouth moves a certain way, and I'm just not getting these other roles. I'm going to just go for it. I'm going to just go smack dab, overdo it. So I go to the audition, and there's all these women sitting around like they were auditioning for a newscasting job, you know, in, in, in suits and blazers. And I walked in with a dress that was cut down, seriously, to my head, like this strings across the front. I was really tiny then, um, but very low cut down the front, low in the back, short. It was, it was low everywhere. Um, I walked in carrying a blow dryer. I plugged in the blow dryer when I got in there and I did my hair while they interviewed me and I just acted crazy, you know, not crazy, but funny. And I, I didn't, I was, I was at this point, I'm like, if I don't do something to be noticed from those other women sitting out there, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to get this. They hired me. 
So, you know, and they wanted this crazy, funny, and it was just great. It, let, it allowed me to be irreverent. USA Network didn't really notice what we were doing, so we got away with early crazy stuff on, on cable, although we were like this little money cow, they would call us. We were making tons of money for USA Network. I started in 91. Always, everyone always thinks it was the 80s because of my hair, but that was kind of the, the character I created and, and the up all night thing that I created that I wanted her to appear ditzy, but if you really listen to the character, she was smart. The only problem that I did that, that I created with that character is that I named her Rhonda as, instead of Elvira, who I also knew very well. If I would have used Bambi, then it, then people wouldn't it wouldn't have been become synonymous. So it bit me in the butt later because then the people typecasted me as that character that they saw on TV. So I could never I could never break out of it. Wow. Never. I really wanted to be in a sitcom. That was my dream. And I just couldn't break out of the up all night um, mold. But during up all night though, I was doing tons of hosting. Um, it was the early days of talk shows with the Sally Jesse Raphaels and Geraldo had his talk show. And I was being booked on those shows for as a love expert, as an advice expert, as a lingerie expert long before this happened. And I, this is just, it was just a, this cool 90s period where I was booked on shows every week. I was going to Chicago. And the only one I didn't do was Oprah. It was like every other show that was big in the 90s, I did. And that was great. And then Vicki Lawrence had a show. I did her show several times. And then she was having a contract dispute, and they actually asked me to fill in for her. And that was as close as I came, because at that point, I really wanted to host a show, because I've been hosting up all night, so I wanted to do, like, a talk show thing. And CBS was really courting me, but it just didn't happen. It, it was, like, close, but no cigar. I, they just didn't know what to do with me, because instead of, like, Ellen being Ellen, I was this sexy character. And even though women were embracing me at that point, it was still nebulous. Then I started really doing stand-up and really headlining and... I mean, that kicked in financially for me as, as now I was headlining major places and opening acts. And then, thank goodness, Van came along. <laughs> well, let's get into that story because that actually kind of spearheads the whole thing behind Sheer Enterprises, which right. is, you know, the business that you're really running now. So to go into that story a little bit about how the idea of Sheer Enterprises came about, and I, I think it starts with oh, it's, a, it's such a love story. I mean, it really is. I mean, and, you know, I never planned on leaving L.A. or acting or anything, and... So what happened was, lo and behold, like from the 70s to the 90s, all of a sudden I'm 40. My parents always said, I really don't want to see you out there at 40. And I was out there 40, but I had a great career. I had never stopped working. And so I never felt like, you know, I was going to ever stop working. But I was also realizing, you know, I'm really not married. I really don't have a kid. I don't want to lose those things. I never, but I chose to be so ensconced in my career. Back then, if you had kids, like they, all the, everybody does that now, all the stars, you gave up this image of, of who you were. So it was like, it wasn't, a lot of friends of mine never had children, where now you see these stars just working through pregnancy. But um, anyway, so so I started also looking into the serial dating to find a husband kind of thing. So I'm dating, and I'm in my early 40s, and um, and, and doing stand-up, and then doing jobs, and hosting here and there. And um, all of a sudden, I get an email through classmates.com, from Van Fagan and I, I was dating somebody at the time for a little bit and I, I go my goodness that's my first boyfriend my first sweetheart I haven't heard from him since I was 22 now I had run into his parents through the years at the airport one time I knew he was married I knew he had kids but I had talked about him through the years our favorite song was Spooky I had used Spooky from the Classics 4 as a theme song my mother had his picture still under her dresser at her house he was truly my first love and um, I was just curious, what would it, to see the first guy you ever kissed, you know? 
and I wasn't really ensconced with this guy that, that I was seeing. He goes, oh yeah, you're going to go see some guy or you're going to get together with some guy from that's living in Lafayette, Louisiana, not even New Orleans. He's living in the country. What are you going to do? Get married and go shopping at Piggly Wiggly, which lo and behold, I ended up doing. <laughs> and move back to uh, Lafayette. It's like Green Acres. And it did end up becoming everything he said. So Van and I kind of, you know, I flirted with him. I just thought it'd be fun to talk to him and mess with him because he broke my heart. He was the only boy that really broke my heart. So I emailed him back through classmates.com. You know, he calls me. I go, so are you married? I go, no, I've been waiting for you. So immediately I started flirting. He goes, well, I'll come out and see you. Okay. And he was jumping on a plane. Like Let's that play. day, he was going to jump on a plane, which, which by the way, is so great for our marriage because he is just like me and we're sporadic and we just go for things and we go on impulse, which is sometimes bad and sometimes good. We've made, definitely made some mistakes in the business world being impulsive, but also you got to go for things too. So I'm like, whoa. So now I'm telling about this boyfriend that I have, Van wants to come visit me. He goes, and he's looking at me and I, I go, yeah, you're right. I, I, he's like, he's probably fat and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you're not going to want to be with this man, you know, whatever. So I, um, not be with him, but you, you don't even want to see him. Like it's a waste of time. So I'm like, so I, I called and I canceled Van like at 3am and told him something came up <laughs> a job or a comedy job. I don't know what I said. He's like, yeah, I bet. So, so we kept flirting for a couple of months via email and, he go, and then he wrote me this email saying, you could be missing out on being with the sexiest man alive. And I'm thinking that's awesome. Awful cocky. Here I am. He knows what I've been doing. He's been watching me up all night for all these years and he's very cocky just like he was so it made me really curious so we made plans to meet in new orleans at christmas because he was still living in lafayette and so it was like about three months we just emailed so we got together on on two days after christmas december 27th and we eloped on january the 11th so in wow. two weeks later this man i hadn't seen in 25 years or 26 years um stole my heart again he obviously wasn't fat and bald when you saw him. He, he was adorable, <laughs> and um, it was just chemistry. It was just like old chemistry. Like, came, I, of course, I forgot all the reasons I broke up with him for a moment, you know, which come back to haunt me in our arguments. But all those reasons went flying out of my head, and all his stubbornness. And but actually, he's very strong, and that's what makes us really good business partners because. You know, I couldn't just get away with a lot of stuff I had gotten away with in, in other relationships. So he, uh, you know, he's a strong person. And um, I said, how am I going to leave L.A.? He owned a company, a software company in Lafayette that was doing really well. And he was divorced over a year. And um, he was going to be the major breadwinner because at that point I was doing stand-up. But I could travel for stand-up. I could travel for a period, so I wasn't a regular on any show. And I just feel like you got to go where the major breadwinner. So you had this company, so... Lo and behold, I went back to Lafayette and his house, it was really in the country. I mean, he was beautiful. He built it himself, but it was so not Beverly Hills where I had lived for most of my time in LA. I mean, we pull up and I hear cows and I hear roosters in the morning and I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? Like I made this decision so quickly and, um, through a series of things. So I was my plan to get him back out of there, um, and get away, but he lost his business. His, uh, he had he had given up controlling interest, and he was trying to infuse some more capital into his business, and gave up controlling uh, his control of fifty one percent. So his partners, which there was also some personal stuff going on there, but his partners basically got together and said, "You're going to go bye bye." Oh <laughs> and boy! So, uh, in the meantime, I was like, kind of happy, but I was also like, "Uh oh." <laughs> 
we're about three weeks into this marriage and you don't have a job and I'm not really working steady. So the really interesting though is that both of us had been at the top of our careers. He had done very well. Van was the kind of guy that, that would start businesses and get bored, then leave them and or sell them. So a lot of the businesses that he started, they're still in business. Not necessarily the right partner in life because if I would have been his partner, we would have owned them all. So, you know, he would just, just move on to something else. I mean, he, a lot of things are still happening. That company that, that he left is still very strong, doing mm-hmm. very well in, in, um, in Louisiana. But he, um, you know, he, it's, again, I didn't have that, like you said, that mentor, that partner. And he didn't have that. And not that it was bad. It's just that sometimes, you, sometimes two people need that, 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 per, that other person. That anchor. Go, that anchor. And just like you and your husband. So we put our heads together. And I guess, how am I going to get him back to L.A.? Because he was, he was a little intimidated by L.A. Because I had a, a, a life there. So he took a job. It was the first time he'd worked for anyone in his life with a company basically doing what he did in Dallas. So we moved to Dallas for a few months. And I liked it. And that was an experience. And that's when I started toying with the intimate apparel business. Because he had built websites. And he had done. He was so computer savvy. And so, you know, software savvy. That was easy for him. So I just had this interest in intimate apparel. And I just wanted to sell intimate apparel on a website. I don't know why. I just thought it was kind of cool. I just had an interest in it for my up all night days where I spent most of the time in my underwear. But so he played with it a little bit and I started looking online sites. How do I buy like um, basically overruns on other products so I could relabel it? Just toying. So that was where the, that's where the germ was planted. It was in Dallas. And that was pretty much early. It was very early because pretty much two weeks into our marriage, <laughs> we had to find another job. And so then he didn't like that position. It wasn't. It just wasn't the right fit. So we moved to San Diego. I couldn't get him right back to L.A., but he was looking for work in San Diego. It never really panned out. And so I'm like, okay, come on. I'm still getting auditions. We're two hours away from L.A. The traffic's crazy. I'm getting a lot of work, little jobs here and there in L.A. We need to go back to L.A. So we moved to L.A., and then we heard about this opportunity at HSN where someone had um, left that it was a very small department, the intern apparel department, but it had left and they were really looking for someone to fill that, her shoes. And so we, we just, this is where a little luck in timing also comes in. I had the interest. We sent out a package. I already had interest in intimate apparel, but I wasn't designing my own. Sent a package to HSN. They wanted us, got some product, went on air and sold out fast. I mean, we became a vendor and then we sold out. So were you selling, so you went to HSN, were you selling somebody else's apparel? I was relabeling product gotcha. at that point, relabeling. Okay. And so, um, I mean, product that was meant to be relabeled, right. you know, that was sold to be relabeled. So generic. Okay. I mean, you can still do that. I mean, we could do that for other people. And, right. You know, been asked to do that. So, but I picked pick things that I liked that I thought had solutions. And so here's the thing though. So we do, we sell out, I think it was 6,400 pro- items that we sold through and HSN was thrilled. And so they're like, when can you be back? There were the buyers. I'm, I've never worked with a buyer. I've worked with producers and directors and people of that type, but I'd never worked with a buyer. And so we're sitting around and they're asking us and planning and, and, um, and they're like, when can you be back? I'm like, we can be back next week. And my <laughs> husband's kicking me because we need product. I'm like, I just want to be on TV. I don't care. Like for me, I was on TV. It was just another form of TV. I'm, you know, I'm selling, but I'm having fun. And so... That was pretty much when I really learned the business side, that regrouping. So we went back. We, we did a little more buying and relabeling. And then I think the next time it was like 11,000 items that we blew through. And wow. so then we started reaching out to manufacturers. Um, 
my first employee who left us for a while, who's now back here, not Marie, but Jill. Um, she was a buyer at HSN and we asked her to come. She had left HSN before we got there, but we had met her in, in the process and we asked her to come work for us, but she had moved back to North Carolina. So she was working from a distance for us, wow. but it was basically Van and I, and then working out of our own literally second bedroom office, which you hear these stories. We were working out of that, that, you know, made it into an office. We had a rack of like lingerie in there and, and shapewear. So were you designing all the stuff by this point and then going and looking the for the third show I started to design okay. and I was still relabeling. So it. it was a combination. By the third show, we started working with manufacturers, but then we had to find, here you go. We have not the finances to do this. This is where I have to give my husband total credit. He was the financial genius because from day one, we never had a bank. Nobody was going to take someone who had never been in the industry before. Um, unproven, you know, I come from show business. He's in this other thing. He's just lost his business. So you're not going to really get that financing. So we took literally what we had and just kept putting it back into the business. I mean, we just, you know, we'd make the little profit, then we'd buy more product. And they just said, we'd buy it, we'd make the profit, put it back. So it was virtually, we financed it. We financed ourselves till about three years ago. Or wow. about two and a half years ago. And, and then the banks, they love our story. They're like, oh my God, you guys are a model for being like, yeah, I was a little sweaty in there sometimes. You know. <laughs> Where were you? Where yeah. were you all those yeah. years ago? They, they weren't there for you. So, <laughs> but, you know, he was lean and mean. My husband, he understood it. I didn't. He, I, I didn't. I mean, I learned it on the fly. But so, but then we had to find, now this is the fascinating part. Then we had to find manufacturers that would work with us because in the intimate apparel business, the number of products, the minimums are crazy like and, and if you're working with china which usually you have to do especially a company the size of hsn you they want you to buy tens of thousands of items in in colors and and in each size and because if you think about it, intimate apparel is much smaller than if you're making a coat or a dress so they want to make up for that fabric by you have Bulk. to buy more yeah. right so we're like oh my goodness they're not looking for these type of orders what do we just so we found little companies that were kind of like just starting out and our first manufacturer which was out of montreal who was a knitting mill he was awesome he he was doing the same thing basically looking for little companies and um he we came up with the abra together we designed that abra together i mean so he was like he helped he would help us we would help him so it was like this back and forth oh great really, and you're really cool and your abra for for all of you listening is really i mean that's your signature piece it is and it's not the first piece but it was it came along pretty much in the first year but it was not my first piece the first piece was a that really I got known for was this lace well which I call pin up panty now but it was it was it was new but it didn't gather attention um, which was really cool because we would have had even more knockoffs uh, until probably five years in, four or five years in. Well, and how that happened, the Abra, which is this knitted bra, uh, it's really comfortable with no underwire, no hooks and eyes. Um, it kept running. Every time we'd order it on HSN, it would just, my husband would watch what they call the run rates because you know immediately how you're doing on HSN. They, they, they book you by how many units you sell, how much money you make per minute. <laughs> So they want you running wow. at like $2,500 a minute. I mean, you start thinking, wow. it's like kind of crazy. It's like in, in show business, it was ratings. You'd have to wait a week to get your ratings. Here, you know immediately what you're doing. Because you can look at a, literally a graph that's on the screen that we can see as vendors and see if who's on the phone, who's calling. 
I mean, there's always going to be dropout from that and fallout, but you know, you can actually see these numbers turning over. So, so um, that that always makes it a challenge even to this day. But I'm pretty safe. But we started working with manufacturers and then just kept growing it, putting the money back in, putting the money back in, putting that. And so now we're sitting in an office. What we're talking about with the dolls, where we're very happy we bought this building two years ago and totally gutted and made it into our. There's a studio in the back because we do our own B footage for photographs and for model, you know, for our own catalogs. We have a warehouse. Doesn't the warehouse doesn't warehouse everything for HSM? A lot of that's drop shipped from China and Canada and Taiwan and all over. Um, you may ask me why aren't we doing things in the United States? Well, it's really hard because the the, the the numbers that we'd love to, but we would love to, and we do a few things. Like I have a perfume fragrance that's done here, but when you're doing now these mass numbers, like. We'll sell anywhere like 400,000 units in a day now at HSM. There's no one in this country that can even produce those kind of units. So, um, I mean, the interesting thing is, I know you'll probably get to this, is that a couple of lines I'm working with that we can actually hire and use um, manufacturers out of either New York or or Miami or California because the quantities are much lower, like Mm. in the 300s to 1,000. You know, so you we, just really had to go to where you could get it produced. We had to go to where we get it produced. And and believe me, that was tough because they have what's called factoring companies, but they basically own, own you and your life, and it's a big percentage. And my husband, we did it a couple of times. He goes, I can't do this. And then other people came to us, and they were like, well, well, yeah, we'll do it, but we'll own you in inventory. My husband's like, no, we can't. We have to do this on our own. And a, a friend of ours, um, talking about a mentor who was a dear friend of mine, it was actually someone I dated years ago who was very wealthy and self-made, uh, but he became a dear friend, and um, we asked him his opinion on things because we were both new at this. And he goes, just know that if someone offers you something and it looks really good, if it looks too good, then it probably is too good. If it's too good to be true, then it is. And we always, and it's very, very simple words, but so true because people would have owned us, and then they would have told us what to do. And we've had little touches of that through our through our business that's happened. Um, but we've never given away our farm. Like we, Van and I still own this company outright. Not saying that we wouldn't do something with it down the line, but right now we're really happy with the way it is, you know, and where we are in life. Can you take us through kind of a brief walkthrough of your business model? Um, so, you know, the products that you have, how you sell them, um, maybe new products line, product lines that you just came out right. with. It, walk us through that. So from kind of a, a business perspective, you know, I can see how money is flowing through your system. What kind of a, you know, what kind of a system you really have? Okay. Well, it's really, it's really interesting. So first of all, our, our initial business model that Van and I had was just to make money and survive. <laughs> so people, <laughs> we, 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 we speak at these, I speak, Van, Van never speaks at these, but I speak all over and at conferences and, you know, business meetings. And I go, seriously, we were newlyweds. And at that point it was, we didn't, we Pretty much, you know, put a stake in it and went for it. We we didn't know. We learned on the fly. I'm not I'm not saying everybody should do it that way. It's just that it was out of necessity. We always believed in, you know, doing it on, on our own. Um, and I know a lot of people come to me and they go, well, "How do I get this off the ground? How do I get How do I get this product off the ground?" And the thing is, like, sometimes you have a new product and you have to get it out there. I know people are so afraid of people stealing their 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 product, but if you don't get it out there, whether it's at a fair or a convention or somewhere, then no one's going to ever know about it, so you have to get it out. But our business model uh, at True Enterprises now is, you know, it started with shopping television, HSM, no doubt, being our first customer and being a huge customer because where else can, in one day's time, can you sell, 
you know, 500,000 units or more. It's crazy. And so they, they are still the leaders in terms of what we manufacture for the Ronda Shear brand, um, which we're also calling Ah by Ronda Shear. Just a little rebranding there, um, but it's still under the Ronda Shear label. But what happened with how that rolled into was my husband then saw an opportunity to do an infomercial with Yabra. And not necessarily did we want to do or be an infomercial company because people have this image that things can be cheaper products and our products is really high quality. But he said, this thing is really moving at this crazy rate. I feel like we can just do this. So we partnered with a company out of Canada. It was a public company because the infomercial company can be very squeamish. I'm not saying it's not good, but you have to know who you're in bed with. And usually when you give up a product like an Avra and you go to an infomercial company, they'll say, okay, I'll give you 3%. And um, it's... You know, that's what you get. Take it or leave it. Take it or leave yep. it. We'll put it on the air for you, and you get 3%, which, you know. But we were like, this is our company. This is our baby. We didn't want to lose control of the opera. We didn't want to lose control of, of who we are. So we literally 50-50 partnered with a company. And it's unheard that of. That is totally it's, unheard of. It's unprecedented. No one's ever done it before or since. And so we made the product. They bought the media time. They were a media company. So it was a really perfect marriage. And... We set the prices at the Abra not to, we never wanted HSN to be undercut. So we, we never brought the price down to like a nine ninety nine. It was always at the price, it was actually at a higher price than even what you could buy it at HSN. And we were not going to hurt our, our number one customer. Right. So they were cool with that. Um, so it was driving incredible business to HSN. It was driving incredible spotlight to our business. Um, it was a $72 million year for us personally, which was great. And that's you know, without even talking about our partners. So it was like just a, just a huge year. And I mean, the year that the, when I'm saying the year, that was 19, 2012, infomercial kind of rolled from 2000. I mean, it's still out there, but infomercials all peak. They all peak and then they valley. It doesn't mean that the eyebrow goes away. It doesn't. There's actually more versions, but it's just that infomercials, all of them have a lifespan. Right. So the infomercial runs, and the whole reason that the infomercial is meant to run and they were buying like $8 million in media a week to run it all over the world. It ended up in 34 countries. And um, just it's, it was this crazy phenomenon that took off. Uh, is to get it into the retail market, like the Walmarts, like the Walgreens, like those kind of stores. And what's really interesting, which is also unprecedented in the infomercial business, is that we made more money off the infomercial than we did the aftermarket which is not how infomercials are designed. No, they're but, really designed as sort of a leader in order to get right, your brand out there. And right. now you see them at Walgreens, so you're going right. to go pick it up. Right, exactly. We didn't, and we were kind of in a way, I know it's kind of weird because if we would have pushed for that to happen, it would have been great, but I think it would have really hurt our business, um, the HSN business, and also where our model is today, which is, you know, we're in about 300 boutiques now um, nationwide looking for more of that. We're looking for brick and mortar, which we never really did before. Hmm. We're in, we've been at the shopping channel, which is like HSN in Canada. We've been on QVC now for a few years in Italy and, and Germany and the UK. That was kind of tied to the Abra. Now we are going solo away from that. Um, I mean, it was Abra plus, but now we're really brand, you know, bringing my brand in right. so that it is different sorts yeah, of different products. It's not led stuff. by the Abra. It's just led by our brand. So we're really excited about that growth when QVC is excited about it. It does not have anything to do with QVC, um, here in the States, but just internationally, which they're quite large. 
um, and it all adds up. So, and now, you know, brick and mortar is becoming more important to us. Just different ways of doing business. I think that, you know, as a business leader, and you know, you can't just depend on one customer. You don't know how the market's going to change. I mean, right now I have, you know, competitors over at HSN, which is fine. I mean, because we're all different and, and there's, there's plenty enough room for other people in the same business, but you still have to go outside. It's just like, just like what I did in LA. You just can't do one thing. You had to, you had to diversify. And so that's what we're doing. And that's why I am so excited right now and where our life is, but no doubt HSN is, is definitely, you know, is still our leader in terms of the way we design. So how we design is we design, um, or I design is collections, which we've always done, but we've become very focused on very specific collections, even though they don't buy necessarily like a whole collection. I'm talking about HSN because they're television and you only have so many minutes on one product. And so they can't buy, like when you walk into a department store, you may see 10 items in one collection. Right. But you also don't have a salesperson there that really is knowledgeable in those 10 items. HSN might have those 10 products available, but you might only see me airing one. So it's at a time. It's kind of weird. It's a different business model than brick and mortar, but but I'm still building off these collections and enhancing them. So they're like four very unique collections. So something really interesting that you're talking about is that you are kind of doing a reverse model. You are designing according to the successful sell rate that HSN has. Absolutely. That's brilliant. Absolutely. It, and, and what's really interesting about that, and even with the Abra, with the infomercial, is that it was tested. I mean, you, you know immediately when you go on air if something's going to work or not. So, yeah, we've had bombs. I mean, everybody, even things that I think are going to be the best, best thing. I've had things I'm like, whoa, what did that do? But Abra was like one of these things that I just, sometimes you just know when something's going to be great. But um, there's no doubt that once you've put it on the air, and you see how it runs, it, it's amazing. And then what's really funny is we think that we're so diverse as a, as a world. The same things that sell well here, sell well in Canada, the UK, it's, I won't say exactly, something's maybe a little different, but for the most part, the exact, I, I mean, I just think that we, we are, I'm saying we as a, as a nation lead the way in fashion. So the same things that we like and the same things that we need comfort-wise, and that's why the opera is still 35 million worldwide because there's women out there all looking for the same thing, mm -hmm. which is comfort and, and, and good pricing and, and value and, and quality. Now, one thing I really want to draw out is the fact that you are a genius in branding. And this is why I say this, because being here local in Tampa Bay with you, I see your name and your brand out in a lot of different places. You. you are, you're very visible on social media. You have events and you're part of fashion show here. You um, you know, you have your Rhonda Shear PJ party right. that's coming up soon. So uh, can you talk to us about your marketing and branding strategy? It, it's obviously very deliberate. It's also very different. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an eclectic person and even you'll see my, my office is eclectic. My home is eclectic, but I don't think there's a, a, a law against that. My life, my career is my taste in food. I don't know. Um, it's the gumbo. It goes back to my mother's gumbo. A gumbo means a lot of things that are thrown into. It's a little bit of everything, you know. Um, I do think you have to be, you know, I've learned a lot about the so social media, which I love. You know, I may not be as, as snappy as a 23-year-old with it, but I'm really good with it. And I, you know, I continue learning. And that is the way to go. And, and even HSN is very aware now. And you'll see how they've changed their marketing with, you'll see them bringing in a lot of 
Keith Urban. You'll see these brands that they're not, they're, I'm a core, I'm, I'm an interesting person because I'm a core vendor that I have a celebrity background, but I'm also a vendor, which means I sell to them and they buy it. Where a lot of these other people are celebrities that they pay them a percentage, like a celebrity percentage. To come and represent. To come in and represent their brand, but they might be very involved with the brand, so they make it more like Iman is, you, is involved big time with her brand, is a huge brand now at HSN. Um, so I'm sure she's doing quite well, but she's still not a personal vendor like we are. So the Twitter thing for them is like, just like it is now in show business, like show business um, is all about, you'll see people on shows and these reality shows because they have millions of followers. That's what they want. It used to be what they call Q score. Now that's the ratings of today. HSN is no different. They want to bring in a Keith Urban because he's got how many millions of followers that bring eyes to HSN, that maybe some of those people shop there again, maybe they won't, but there's new people, new blood that would never have gone to an HSN. So I think Danny Deutsch is now handling HSN's PR. So, you know, that that's, along with Mindy Grossman, who's an amazing CEO, and, and she's a, truly a branding genius. Yeah. Um, she just blows my mind, the things that she's done. So I, I try to emulate perhaps in, in a much smaller way, and on my own you know, I can get away with a lot more. I can get away with little naughty things like a pajama party, but it just sounds like a big company. So um, branding is very important. you got to keep your name out there. you got to build up your social media, which we're doing as well. Uh, we've even hired, you know, a PR from outside of here. And um, I do like being involved with the community. Now, when we moved here, we moved here initially for HSN cause we, because we were not like a company that was um, so much about uh, seasons. We could, you know, Intimate Power was all year. Now, HSN's change their model a little bit where I go on what they call uh, a visit. So I might be on for nine hours over a two-day period, even though I live here. I mean, I could live anywhere now. But back in the day when we started on HS, HSN, like in 2003, they would call me up and say, can you fill in at three in the morning because someone's product fell out or it didn't pass QA. And so we thought when we moved here, it would build our business. And it did because we were constantly on air when they needed us. We would be filling in. So that was one of the reasons we moved here. On top of the fact that my husband and I were newlyweds and we thought this was a great place. We love St. Pete, Tampa. So I wanted to, to give back and get involved in various charities. Of course, the first one being breast cancer. That made sense, making strides for breast cancer. Awesome group. And also I was learning more about breast cancer through women who were telling me that the, these bras, the Abra and other bras were doing fabulous things for them. So I started designing for them. So... Um, uh, then, you know, then you make speeches and then my charity leads to another to the point where I have to back off a little bit cause I can't do everything, but I'm, I sit on the board of the Mahaffey theater, which is true to my heart because it's my showbiz background and Bill Edwards, who is amazing in this community as an entrepreneur is doing amazing things for St. Pete. And so I'm, I'm really proud to be on that board and see things happening with that theater. Of course, the first piece of business that I said is, well, I'm on the board. I'm going to book my comedy show in here. But <laughs> it wasn't. Quite, it was not that easy, right? Well, and you know, they they really liked it because I'm going to make money for the money for the uh, Bill Edwards Foundation for the Arts. So we did it last year, and we actually did make some money for them. And um, and that also comes out of another thing is I have you know these incredible friends that have remained in my life that are stand up comics and actors, many stand up comics, which is they're truly the coolest people because. Even though they're male and female, they, they, they bond together. Like, you know, you know, male businessmen, I mean, businessmen don't necessarily bond where females will help each other. In the world of comedy, comics really embrace each other. It's, it's this unique part of, of show business. And so I had a friend named Carol Montgomery who for years was in my original pajama party that I did all over the place, including L.A. and the improv and the comedy store. 
and Suncoast and Vegas. She goes, you need to do this show again. I'm a boomer. I'm tired of being on the road. She's been on the road, so she's been doing her whole life. Once a comic, always a comic. She goes, this show can make money. There's nothing out there for the boomers. There's no one's addressing them. We're all getting older, this group of comics, that we've all, you know, become a certain age together. And you need to do it. I mean, I'm telling you, this chick has bugged me, and she's a dear friend, for years. So we booked it, and it was a success. So now she's been after me so much that I'm really taking it seriously. So, um, because here's what you can do. This is where I think outside, you have to think outside the box. The show is great and it is entertaining and there's marketing and branding around that with product, but it also gets me into communities where I can meet my customer and go to those boutiques and go to those stores that are handling my product and really reach out to the customer and teach people that may be selling my product, how to, how to sell the product. And so that goes back to my brick and mortar. So who would think that stand-up comedy could bring me back? and really help what I'm doing today. So, and it's also just gets me out there. Um, it's, it's called grassroots. When Jay Leno first got it was a, on the tonight show. The reason why he was so incredibly embraced is because Jay Leno as, as a road comic, he would get up and do every morning radio show five in the morning, six in the morning and stay in touch with those people, stay in touch and keep those original contacts. And I always tell people, keep those original contacts that you've always had. You will use them. I, Use my, which I'll get back to Playboy, those original contacts that, that I've had since day one in LA are still in my life. So this goes back to my comedy, which I love, and, it's, and it feeds my soul. It makes my husband crazy, but because I use him as part of the act now. <laughs> but it feeds my soul. But now we're taking this really serious, and we're going to some theater conventions to start selling the show. And I have some agents that are very interested in booking it. Now, of course, I have to be careful of my time because of HSN. I go on the air and QVC. Um, but we're talking about even branding it to the point where I could even either, either have someone fill in for me or either have my part of the show virtually videoed or like Skype it in. Skype it in. Thank you. So, you know, I don't know. So, so we're doing fun things with that. And then my up all night, I mean, I don't know if Marie tell you what's going on with that. No. Okay. So, um, up all night was such a name synonymous with who me and you know still people you know I think a lot of people more women know me now for HSN but guys know me from H, from up all night so years ago when USA Network gave you know had the name up all night I was friendly with their their attorney over there and I said if if you all stop using this name I really want to own it so I stayed in touch with him and we were here my husband and I were here well maybe it was back in LA back in LA before we moved here to, to Florida. The name became available, and he let me know. So we trademarked the name. And I have the name up all night for certain uses in the use of television. Of course, you may remember NBC did a show uh, recently with uh, named Up All Night. And um, we, we talked to them. We went after them a little bit with attorneys. And they, were, they, they basically said, okay, come after us. And we're like, you know, I don't really want to hurt that. You know, they really don't want to burn that bridge. And I think their pockets are a lot deeper than ours. And our attorney said we could continue to use it anyway. So that show is gone now. And um, up all night, we have the name. And we, we still have it and maintained it. So we have been now producing up all night. So this is what we're doing with it. We're producing half-hour shows. Instead of me throwing to full-length features, I'm throwing to what people submit as, as um, film shorts. Because there's a lot of filmmakers. You'll see them on yeah. YouTube. You'll see them in contests. Or you'll see yeah. them... And they can't get the eyes on them, you know. So 
so I'm going to throw to their work. I'm going to throw to comedy sketches. You know, young people that you know, I would have killed for this opportunity to have people see my work. So comedy sketches, music videos. And I already have some major people in L.A. really interested in this show. And that's phase one. And we're, we were actually putting it on the air, buying our own time on CW locally and airing it. Phase two would be then to get it syndicated, which I, I have the interest. Phase three would be then to do it much like um, Up All Night, except throwing to maybe a series of features and then running it kind of like an American Idol and then maybe down the line having a contest and then someone like a Netflix or a Hulu producing full-length features for these people. Wow. So we're in this. We're really into it heavy now, and we're actually, we're, we're, I think we've got six shows in the can. That's so exciting, Rhonda. It's really exciting. And, it, and once again, it, you know, I haven't looked into selling advertising time yet, but I know easily I could sell advertising time to local, a restaurant or two, and we'd talk about them. Right now I'm just doing little commercials for my own, rondashare.com, mm-hmm. and, and contests with that. But So we're starting really small. And my husband's, by the way, my husband, Van, has been after me to do this for years. It's really? been me that dragged my feet. He goes, what? because we've had people come after. I, I want to do a reality show, and I really don't, because I don't want that, you know, they're very invasive, and yeah. I'm not argumentative, and I don't want to create trouble. But So a dear friend of mine, Barry Posnick, who who owns Zoo Productions, now has Barracuda Productions, he started, are you smarter than an average fifth grader? You name it. If you go look him up, he's, he's produced everything. I worked with him back in the 90s when he was producing... Joe Rivers, and so Barry has been shopping a reality show around for me, and we just haven't gotten the bite. We, we get bites, but then no one, you know, no one really ever has ended up doing it. And then I, I don't even know if I really want to do that. And I told him about this project, and he's loving it. So I think this is going to be a really easy project because, you know, it's going to be just me hosting, which and I am. I people know my name, and and these these same people that are making films. Are the kids who grew up with me, who grew to love those B genre films that they're craving, mm-hmm. and they don't have eyes for them anymore. So I'm really excited. And this again all leads back to product and branding, and just another way to get your name and brand out there. And what I so love about that is you really are the orchestrator for these platforms that can bring eyes to folks. Like you know the comedy, the PJ party that you're doing. Right. You're being you're 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 using your name and your brand. Right. To create an opportunity for people for whom it would really benefit. Absolutely, that's brilliant, and kudos to you because that's incredible. Well, look, the show for the, the the pajama party, which we haven't, we're you know we're just launching these things now, but it really there really isn't entertainment for boomers. I mean, not that it's necessarily. I mean, I have young people that come to the show that love it, but no doubt that my boomer audience really really loves it. And it's a destination. We have four comics on stage in their pajamas. We're telling it like it is. We're talking about. Our lives and it's like a party, so it's very much destination for women to show up in their pajamas and, and, and party or couples. But um, it's also I incorporate my brand. I have a style show with mm-hmm. my brand out there with my show. We we run discounts on my product. So, um, I could talk about it on HSN and and and, and you know uh, pump the show a little bit. So it's very cool. So. But what it what it says to me, it, I'm using everything that I ever utilized in my life, and what I learned as a comedian, I use all of that on air. I was never a salesperson, but I sell on HSN. But I use my improv ability, which started way back with Harvey Lindbeck, and then stand up. I use my improv ability to sell and my timing, and I use my years in front of um, the camera and being dressed and working with designers, and then my own pageant years of designing my own costumes. In the way I design my um, my pieces of apparel and and, and um, intimate apparel, 
So everything that I utilized from day one, I used. And so I always tell young people, if you hate that first job, don't go in there negative. You're going to take something from it. You're going to pull something that you will use later on in your life. That's so true. So, so very true. Rhonda, how would you say that you have really evolved as a leader since you've started this company? I find it so amusing, you know, <laughs> you know, because we, we won Ernst & Young a couple of years ago, and I was like, what? Excuse me? I was known as a bimbo on up all night. For, I'm a bimbopreneur. <laughs> um, I, I, it's, it kind of blows me away. I don't, I don't think of myself that way. The only thing I think of myself as is a hard worker, and that whatever I, I have that same fire, and I embrace whatever I'm in, and I go at it full force. So I, I appreciate that people look at me as an entrepreneur. I still kind of, um, you know, chuckle about that because of, you know, I, my years in front of the camera, it's so different. I wish that my parents, my father would have seen it because my parents were, they were all in business people. My mom saw a little bit of it. My mom saw much of the HSN success, but I, you know, that's the only thing I regret is that I really wish I had that pat on the back from them. That's the only thing. Other than that, I'm having a great time with my husband who's an amazing business partner my stepson who's very involved in the business. And we have a very family uh, community here, about 25 employees, and we party together. We play really hard and we work really hard. And I, I love that environment. I couldn't be, I don't think I'd do very well in corporate America. Um, like when people, they come to work here, they say, well, what are the rules? You know, they're expecting that corporate America. We're like, well, we have to make sure that we have a plant named Harold. That's our good luck plant. It's <laughs> been here a long time. It has to get watered every now and then. Other than that, that's pretty much the only rules. We like to let people run with their jobs and we don't look over their shoulders. We don't, we're not, you know, uh, micromanagers at all. Uh, we have really good people working here that really, we hope, love what they do and they brace it. So... You know, we're really satisfied. Now, the two things that we're working on that are really cool right now, um, other three things we're working on, is three other brands. And, and I kind of smile about this because they're a little offbeat as pretty much my life has been. Um, we're doing a line with Kato Kalin. And Kato Kalin is from, um, perhaps people remember him from the O.J. Simpson. O.J., yes. yeah. Okay, well, Kato... He was a Hollywood guy during that time, though, right? Kato like Kalin was the houseboy that basically lived behind Cato's house and heard when the glove heard something and then they found the glove yeah. behind the house. Okay, so my Cato story is really interesting and it also goes back to my Playboy story. Cato years ago was trying to be a stand-up comic when I was just starting. So I, I worked some little divey club with him outside of LA and I remember thinking this guy's really funny. And then, then I didn't, hadn't seen him for years, and but his name would come up because he did a lot of B films. He had done a lot of the films that I showed on Up All Night. So then in 1993, the tragedies happen, and I see his name, and I'm like, whoa. And so I followed the trial like everyone else. And um, during that year, it was like so intensely glued. 93, everyone was so intensely glued to their TV following that trial. And I was surprised. I knew six people who testified. Wow. And so up all night, we, we didn't make fun of the tragedies, obviously. But we made fun of the trial with the dancing Edos on. They had me behind the Bronco. Like I was driving and, and you know, just crazy stuff, you know. Um, so I wanted, we were airing one of Cato's films. And it was during the trial. And I'm like, we need to get him on. We need to get him on. The writers would be crazy. We need to get him on. And USA Network never paid for talent. I mean, I, me, yes. But we would get all these. We, it's just the way that the basic cable, not, not to do with me. It was <laughs> the way that the, the network was set up. We'd have people come in and they would pay their transportation or whatever. Or their, but that was it. They, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't making big money as guests on, on the show. And 
we reached out to Cato through his attorney. His attorney's like, no, he can't come on. He cannot come on. He can't unless you pay a 5000 He apparently needed the money at the time, you know. And I talked USA Network into paying $5,000, and we booked him. And the show went through the roof. Wow. And what was really even more important than that was that, and for me it was great, because I love PR that, and, and, and marketing, is that the press wanted to talk to him so badly, and he was known to be such a bad, you know, he was, look, I don't blame him. The, the racial tension in, in California was really bad at that time. It was not a friendly environment. He was afraid of his own life. He did not know who was going to come after him, who was his friend, who wasn't. He was just working for O.J. Simpson. He was not a friend of O.J. Simpson. He was working and living there because he was rent-free. I mean, as many young actors, right. it's just that he was in, you know, he got, he got, he got persecuted, prosecuted more than O.J. in a way, you know. I mean, he really, it, it changed his life forevermore. He was this talented guy that was testing for all these comedies and then everything stopped at that point so I, I guess I really relate to him because I was so pigeonholed so they opened the back we opened the back door of the studio when he came in that day and there were you know how when you see thousands of reporters it was a it was a sea of reporters trying to get to him and so he only they only his attorney only allowed a couple of people in the entertainment tonight a couple of others they couldn't talk about anything except for the film and the fact that he was appearing on my show so I'm standing next to him, and it's great for me because I'm on air. I'm standing next to him, and the first thing they ask, do you think he killed her? <laughs> <laughs> Entertainment tonight. And, but I'll never forget. And I told, I told Cato this because we're working together so closely. His skin just, I said, you had goosebumps. Mm-hmm. You had just had goosebumps down your arm on there, and you turned red. Um, but, okay, so I ran into Cato Kalen about not even a year ago at the Playboy Mansion because I've had a long uh Long run with Playboy. Um, one of the things I did to get noticed in Hollywood, going against the grain again, was during my stand-up comedy days, people were telling me, you can't do comedy because you're pretty. You can't do comedy because you're sexy. The same thing. Was biting, now it was biting me in the butt again. Now I can't be funny. I can't do the girl next door. Now I can't be funny. So I went right to Playboy, and I said, you need to do girls of comedy. And they did. They did it. And really? So you I, took that idea? I took the idea. Wow. To, they actually ended up almost, almost doing a show. It was my idea in 91. It was before Up All Night. So I was starting to climb as a stand-up. Brought that to them, and they did it. And so I had to help them find some comics. At that time, it was a little hard. Um, and it was also hard to find the few comics that could do it, that would do it. But it turned out to be a really, really popular issue. And then um, it was just a layout. Was, I was one of the, of the six or five women that did it. Okay, so then... That same year, right after that issue came out, is when I, I got cast as Up All Night as the host. And so then Playboy watched the rise again. Of They, they started seeing just what was going on with Up All Night, and the PR was pretty crazy at the time. And so they came back and asked me to do a celebrity pictorial. So that was round three in, in, in Playboy. Plus, they kept up with me through the years and would write about me in their editorial pages on the back. Because they always got a kick out of the fact that I ran for office because of that stupid little picture with all my clothes on. Right. So they would write about me through the year. I'm talking about from 78 through always. They would write what wow. I was up to, which was really cool. So then, so they asked to do the celebrity pictorial, and I did it. And it was, the money was nice. And I was like, and I was 37. So I was like. How great is that? That's like pretty cool. Like, that's pretty cool. So I'm assuming you weren't fully, fully clothed at that point. No. <laughs> it was the least clothed I How was. things changed since you were 22, right? I mean, my mom was alive and I asked her, you know, she was cool. You know, she's like, yeah, yeah, you know, show it now because you won't later. So <laughs> she's pretty funny. And uh, it was, but they wanted, a, they wanted, and I wanted um, a comedic. I wanted it to reflect up all night. So we, we shot in places that were open all night long, like diners and bowling alleys, working bowling alleys yeah. while I was shooting. 
And Hefner loved it because it was really, it was funny. It was funny. It, I mean, it was funnier than it was sexy, but it, it was it was a really popular layout as well. And um, and Jerry Seinfeld was on the cover. There's only been like three or four men that have been on the cover since the beginning of Playboy. So it was it's one of those Playboys that stood out. Yeah, you can't yeah. you can't find it. So um, anyway, so so. So talking about it. Kato Kalin and Playboy. You. Somehow they're related. <laughs> just have cue cards going. Um, so Kato, yeah, he was. So we ran, so through the years I've been invited to the mansion just because my longstanding relationship with him. I was never a playmate. I was, you know, I was never one of Hefner's girlfriends or anything, but I think I just was on the list through for not movie night, but for some of the big parties. Now the parties are different. You can, you can pay for them now, but this is a party I got invited to. And, and we went, and I took some, I, somehow I managed to get some of my staff in there. It was kind of cool. So we go up there, and I run into Cato. This is the, recently, within this past year, you yeah, said? Okay. Recently. So we go up there, I run into Cato, and he just looking great. You know, he's like 53, he looks 54, amazing. And what are you doing? And he's talking, and I'm like, we should do a line with you. We should do a line of men's loungewear because you're known as like, you know, you lay around on the couches. And he's like, I love it. And he comes up with the name Couch Potato. And we're just like, just kind of going back and kidding. And then I go, but you know, I really mean this. And so we came back, we regrouped, and then we flew him in and had a meeting with him. And then we started working on the line. And then we threw his line out there at Fashion Week. And wow. now people are biting at it like crazy. And the line's in production right now. Wow. So, um, he, and this is where I like to do my stuff. He's going to, shh. <laughs> he's actually going to be a guest star in the comedy show. You're kidding in, in me. St. Pete. Yeah. Ooh. So I'm really excited about it. He's going to act because he he was a stand-up. I mean, I'm saying he just start, he never really he's really funny. He's a naturally funny person. I think he, you know I really want him to be in the show, but I think that because I think it'll be great for his brand. So now yeah. you'll have my brand and his brand out there, yeah. and it shows him in a different light, and he can be self-effacing and talk about himself the way I kid about myself, you know. So that's one. And then the other thing is Crystal Hefner. So Crystal Hefner is. The third Mrs. Hefner. He's only been married three times, despite the fact he's had a lot of girlfriends. And um, Crystal's manager came to us and said, Crystal would love to do an intimate apparel line. So we thought that it was going to be like really sexy because Playboy, and she's really the girl next, she's the girl next door. She could have gotten those parts. (laughs) So, I mean, she's, she's almost, I won't say conservative. She's not conservative, but you know, she's natural is the thing. Very little makeup, very beautiful, very smart. She's really cool. So we met with her manager and um, so now we're in production with Crystal Hefner's line as well. And it's... It has nothing to do with Playboy. It's Crystal Hefner because, you know, they sold the name Playboy. But she is, uh, it's loungy as well. It's like the kind of like wear off your shoulders, soft, 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 you know, just baby soft fabrics and uh, the kind of stuff that'll sell. But a little, a little more youthful than my line, um, skewing a little younger. But I still think my age would wear it as well. But it's definitely skewing that way. And we want it that way because it also makes my line, my, my the entire Sheer Enterprises brand bigger and so now we have we have something for men we have something for women and they're also doing a shapewear line for men i just can't say who yet but it's someone that you would know in this community wow yeah okay and that's really exciting and that is going to launch as an infomercial and that's a partnership gotcha wow but so we're doing uh, there's a lot of balls in the air right now and i'm writing a book and we launched fragrance and my fragrance with hsn has been very successful so we're meeting with them to see where what's the next step in fragrance do we do another fragrance what do we do so 
I mean, I'm the oldest I've been. Of course, we're all the oldest I've been at the moment. And yet I'm having the most fun I've ever had because I'm actually incorporating everything that I've ever done in my life altogether. And I can speak as a testimonial to that because you literally are shining right now. I mean, you really, you really own... I think that's one of the things that has intrigued me most about, you know, seeing your history through Hollywood, through your entrepreneurial history, which really speaks to me that, you know, you've just always owned who you are and you go with it and you just make things happen to to come of it. You have to. I just see people that are so afraid. And by the way, I was very shy. I was a shy person. I pushed myself. And sometimes you have to push yourself through situations. Um, I would never be, I mean, a fifth grade teacher slept. I was raising my hand wanting to answer a question and she slapped my hand she slapped my hand between her two hands and I never asked a question in class after I mean I'm talking about all the way through college I never raised my hand like it was so like to do that to a kid just so I was actually I had this shyness but the stand-up comedy with the mic in front of me you pushed yourself pushed myself and the mic was my security blanket and allowed me to um you know to be uh you know to say the things I wanted to say and also being the, the baby of four kids um, my, they, I was kind of sloughed off as this baby because I was really younger than all of them. So no one would ever let me talk in my house. So I'm like, you all are going to listen. You're going to listen at a club. So um, anyway, it, it's just everything in your life totally comes full circle, which is what my book's about. It's just, it's going to be humorous, but it is going to be hopefully a little bit of a rah-rah. I mean, pretty much what we talked about today would be everything I'd like to just say in the book. But the stories that go along with it. Some, some very funny Hollywood stories. Rhonda, I really want to bring this conversation to a close um, by really recognizing that, yes, you've had this phenomenal background and this history that has really established you as as a name brand and, and somebody who's able to, to, to really bring kind of an army behind her to right. whatever you choose to do. But more significantly, as a businesswoman, you are incredibly sharp. You've built something massive. You have line after line coming out, brand after brand, product after product, internationally, you know, multi-millions of pieces sold, multi-million dollar brand under Sheer Enterprises. What advice would you give to women who, who have that one first product, but have visions for a large brand and really want to take it there? What advice would you give you know, to them? Um... You have to own it, like you said. You have to put a stake in it and, 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 and just live it and breathe it and drink it and and get it out there via social media. Uh, especially if it's like something that you make in your own home, go sell it at a fair, get other people to talk about it. I mean, it's it, that goes back to what I did knocking on doors in Hollywood. I mean, that, that was getting in my car and knocking on doors. You still can do that. You still have to and, – and I do know that nowadays, because I talk about it with my publicist, there's more noise out there. There's more networks. There's more tweeting. There's more... But we were talking about, and I can't get divulged that either, but even when we launched the Cato brand, what we're doing is going back to the beginning of basics of Hollywood PR. We're making a big smash. Look at me. So sometimes you have to just do things that are a little out of the box. And even if it's a little out of your comfort zone, you've got to just go for it. And, and, and I do think that going to these meetings and hearing other women's stories is very empowering. And um, I've learned a lot from other women. And, and pretty much I always say the same thing. And then the other thing is to try to keep it your own, if you can, financially. Try to keep it your own. Hold on to it. Try not to give it up. And get a good group if you hire someone or make sure they're, who you have around you. Like I have such a, a great team. And I'm very lucky to have the husband I have too as that support group. 
So um, make sure your support group is good. Make sure, it's hard to always trust people, but if you can make keep it and own it and not financially give it away, try to do that. That's my first advice. And just love it and, and, and dream about it at night and then get in online and tweet about it. Get the excitement going. Like when I first heard Hollywood, it's another story. You can leave it out if you want, but I wanted to make noise and I didn't have to make noise. I didn't have any credits. Um, but I, I had majored in PR. That was that was my background. So I posed for a poster. I got a poster company. Don't ask me how. I got a poster company behind me. It was during the whole Farrah Fawcett years. And it was go for the gold. And it was right at the time of the 1984 Olympics. And it, it was playing off the whole Olympic gold thing. This famous photographer shot it. The, post, the poster did very well, even though it was an unknown person out there. I'd done a lot, but it was still not known to masses. I got a billboard put up on Sunset Boulevard. I, I got it financed enough. My parents were in a little money. A couple of other people were in a money to finance, which wasn't as much as it probably would be today. It was huge on, on Sunset Boulevard on a curve, which everybody went around. There were a lot of accents when they saw this gold bikini clad, dripping wet in a gold leather bikini woman. And so now I have Hollywood going, who is that Rhonda Shear? Who is that Rhonda Shear? The only problem was I didn't have anything to fall back on. I was just this poster girl. So that I couldn't send them to now, you know, something, something.com or you'll see her on this show. So, so my thing is you can make that noise about your product and, 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 and blare it out. But what I didn't know when I was very young, which I know now, have the product to stand back on and, and just have that kind of, you know, just uh, keep working the product and, and, and perfecting that product so that, when people do come looking for it, you have it ready. Rhonda, I really, really want to thank you so much for thank taking you, so much time with me today. And, I've enjoyed um, this. And really being able to share your story with all of my listeners out there, women who are just rocking it in their businesses and are so overjoyed to be able to hear your story on they can do it. where you've come from, what you've done, and um, and absolutely that all of us, all of us all really of us can, do, can it. do it. Financially, we didn't have, we started from nowhere. So I know, I know that everybody can do it. Every, just have the passion and go for it. Yeah. Thank you Thank so you. much for your time. Thank you, Katie. And that was the great Rhonda Shear. What a powerhouse. My two major takeaways that I got from that were really number one, which was so obvious throughout the entire conversation, was that she is just a hard worker. I mean, knocking on the doors all throughout Hollywood, making stuff happen in her business, making relationships happen, making business happen. She just really, truly just pounded the pavement and made business happen. She created her own luck in her business life and in her entire career. And I really admired that about her. And the second thing is that she's just so comfortable in her skin. She truly owned herself from the very beginning on who she is and just went out and did whatever she put her mind to and truly believed that she could do it. So those are two major takeaways that I am taking home. What did you get out of this? Was there something that really struck you, something that you loved, something that maybe you didn't love? Go ahead and shoot me an email at katie at bizwomenrock.com. And let me know what you thought about this show. And maybe let me know what you would like to see in this show. Is there a certain guest that you would love to hear their story? Are there questions that you really want me to ask? Let me know. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I'll see you on the next episode. I'm, 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 I'm